Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown with with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the playwright, Beth Amalo. Hi Beth, how's it going? Hiya Kieran, it's all good, all good. As good as it can be, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're out in Miami at the moment? I am indeed, yes, in sunny Miami. Um, although there's a cold front today, weirdly. Right. Um, yes, it's actually the same temperature as Cardiff, which is uh, slightly bizarre, but at least makes me feel a little bit closer to home, which is always good. We were talking about this a little bit before we started, but what's the kind of feeling like in Miami at the moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it, feels, it feels slightly more hopeful. It feels slightly less tense. Um, there's still an awful lot of stuff and opinions and conversations that you know need to happen and need to be sorted out um so just hoping that there's now a space for for that to happen but yeah i mean you know just hearing all of the stuff that biden's either putting back into place or putting into place to do with um you know, particularly to do with transgender rights uh to do with just uses of pronouns um all of that is really, uh, yeah, gives you gives you some hope. Yeah, I think from from the side of the pond, there is a feeling of, of hope um, now that Biden's been elected. But in yeah. term, in terms of like COVID restrictions, what are you able to do now? Are you in <laughs> kind of the same place as we are? And uh, not at all. No, Florida has. Uh, no restrictions really or no legal restrictions um it's pretty much do what you think is best uh which uh, which says a lot about how south florida is run generally actually right. it's a real melting pot of all cultures and so everyone kind of there's a there's a real culture here of doing your own thing you know which gives miami obviously it's a unique kind of feel but also uh, it's very much part of the uh, lots of other deeply ingrained uh, situations and problems here so yes everything is open and at full capacity as long as the owners think that it's safe for them to be at um, full capacity right. so they're basically putting all responsibility in the hands of the owners and out of the hands of the government something that um yes that uh, Trump put in place before he left and so the the um, senator and the 
the governor of Florida is big big friends with Trump. So um, right. yeah, it's all about opening, opening, opening. They opened the strip clubs before the schools here. What? Which says an awful <laughs> lot, I think. Yeah. Do, so do you feel kind of scared by that, or like how? Are you still um, taking precautions? Do I have, oh gosh, good question. Um, no, I think it's uh, it says a lot about us as humans generally, which is an obsession I have anyway as a writer. But because there are no restrictions, I'm definitely, you know, it's uh, it's that real balance then of. Yeah, we're just very good with rules, aren't we, yeah. as humans? So when they're not there, then I'm probably, you know, it's like, yeah, well, it's only my mate's house and we'll yeah. be outside. Or, you know, oh, I'll only pop into this place. Obviously, we have to wear masks to go into right. places, but it's just not a legal requirement. So we do, we wear masks everywhere, but there's constantly the flutter of like, oh, well, maybe I'll just go there anyway, you know. And we stay outside, mm. but we'll go to the beach and... We'll go to the park. The kids will go to a playground. So you flutter with it. You have a little play with it because there's no rules. If there were rules, then of course you wouldn't do any of that stuff. So, yeah. But then my daughter is home this week because she's been exposed because one right. of the uh, kids in her school was positive. So it's just in and out, isn't it? And constantly balancing and doing as much as you can without, well, without taking the piss, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're gonna, um, in the coming months, find in the UK, hey, like when things start opening up, and maybe not everyone has been vaccinated. But I'm gonna move on, and the first thing I wanted to ask you is, how did you first get interested in theatre? Well, I would say that the first time that I in theatre in particular, because obviously performance and, you know, being on stage, you know, coming from a smaller village in North Wales, that was something that you basically, you know, would do from a very young age because mm. of stead boards, because of Sunday school, and, um, you know, assemblies at school. So that kind of performance was slightly different to, to theatre, I guess. So that was something I always enjoyed doing and always found myself doing. But um, there was this uh, TV show on S4C. I'm pretty sure it was called Cuddler Boo. And it was a, a game show. It was a phone-in game show. Right. And so there were all these competitions that would happen over the hour that you had to call in with the answer to to win that specific thing, right? And there were all sorts of like telly and um, I can't remember other things. I don't think there were big things like holidays or classes. Oh, okay. I can't remember. But it was the time that you had the little you know, the, the telephone that you had to turn like a dial, you know, you had to turn it around. Yeah. And you had to keep kind of dialing. And I remember during this time we had a phone, we got a new phone that had the redial button, which was a <laughs> massive, like, game changer. So it was a real family event. We'd sit there, it was on a Sunday night, I think, and we'd be phoning, phoning, yeah. you know, competing, and we'd never win. But then at the end of the show, everyone that had called got to put into like this big you know bucket those things yeah. that they turn and one name would be taken out and they would call that number um, and they would win 200 pounds right okay. so we're watching it and then they, and it's all live so it's all very exciting <laughs> <laughs> now. 
and they call and say, oh, it's ringing out. And then our phone rings in the house. And we're like, oh, my God. And I can't even remember if we had to answer But anyway, we won 200 pounds. Right? Yeah. Which was just super exciting. So um, my dad or my mum, I can't remember, but they asked me and Lodi, my sister, um, they said, oh, there's this new drama school that started. There's this group that does drama called the Skoglanithwi. Um, would you guys like to go? We could use this money to pay for your first couple of terms. Yeah. And so we were like, okay, cool. And my sister is a, is a dancer, so she was interested also in performance. Um, and we were about nine years old. And so that's where I kind of started getting into thinking about theatre as opposed to, you know, just performance. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, I was with them until, well, until I left home at 18. Um, and, yeah, so that was when I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. This thing, whatever yeah. it is, that's bringing all these people that feel like me in lots of different ways. Uh, it was just the place, because we were all a bit odd. I know Escoclanet has a slightly different reputation now because it's, you know, it's been successful and it's done very, very well. Yeah. But at the time, at the beginning... We were just all a bit odd, you know, we all didn't quite fit in. Yeah. Um, not that, you know, there were lots of cool people there, but even they were like, just alternative or different or, so it was a real just place for that. And we just happened mm. to sing and dance and act when we hung out, you know? And, and like, were you, when you were, when you were a child, did you write? Were you a writer? No, not at all. No, I started writing. Although I did write my first play in primary school. I can't remember how old I was. Let's say I was like seven, eight. And I remember taking so much pride in it. And it was just an assignment that we had to write about three bees that were stuck in a jar. Right. Right. We had to write dialogue about it, um, which is actually, looking back, just brilliant in terms of structure of writing a play. <laughs> you know, like put three bees in a jar and try and get them out. It was brilliant. Um and I remember writing it and taking such, like, you know, I, like, redrafted it and I just kind of, like, coloured around yeah. it. And I remember it being something I really, really enjoyed. But, no, I started writing when Cumni Vran Wen took a load of us. Um, we all got to sign up. And, you know, at the time it was, like, so cheap. It was, like, 30 quid or something to go to Tinewid for a whole weekend. Tinewid is a writing retreat in, um, in North Wales, it's in Llanus, it. yeah. and it's beautiful oh god it's like the place itself you fall in love with and it's so quiet and just lovely like anyone could write there they really could um and that's when I started writing so I was probably ooh, I'm guessing here but I think I was about 17 something like that mm. yeah so that's yeah that's when I actually wrote as opposed to perform. And um, when, in terms of more sort of general career in the arts, when did you begin to think, this is what I want to do as a career? Yeah, so uh, I went to drama school. Well, I went to school, I went travelling for a while, and then I went to drama school in London. Went to Webber Douglas. Uh, still thinking I want to be an actress, want to be an actress, yeah. like there is no way that anything will change that like anything i was so adamant um and then i left drama school and of course there was 
there were many quiet periods and every time in a quiet period I would write um, and yeah. even in my showcase for drama school actually we had to do uh, perform like two monologues in front of agents and whatever um, and both of those pieces well one I translated and one I wrote as well um, so I would I did both then in my 20s until I was about I don't know 27 28 and it got to the point that I felt that I was doing all right in both but that I kept flitting back and forth and so it nothing was kind of moved nothing felt like I had momentum right. it kind of felt like quite a plateau and I was seeing all of my peers that were doing one of them and just doing you know they were going off and doing really well and all this kind of stuff and I was like oh this doesn't feel right and I remember waking up in um, well in my girlfriend's bed who is now my wife and I woke up and I said I'm a writer <laughs> and she's like all right and I'm like no I'm a writer from now on from this day on I'm a writer and that's all I've been since then and yes weirdly or luckily or whatever the word is of whether it was meant to be I have not been out of work since that day that I decided right. I'm a writer How... I've always had something that I've been writing um did that make it but, yeah. did that make it easier or harder to kind of let the acting and the performance side go? I think there was a slight relief, you know. I think so. I think looking back, you know, having that opportunity to have an outlet and fall in love with theatre, and it just so happened to be through performance, because, you know, there's... I don't really know of any opportunities at that young that you can go to just start writing or directing mm -hmm. or producing you know it's uh, it usually is the in isn't it and looking back i hated hated wearing costume like hated <laughs> i really did i hated wearing any kind of costume i never knew what to do with my hands or my arms on stage and the thing that i was always obsessed with were the words you know was the script yeah. and just that interaction and that reaction um and so, yeah, I just never thought that it was a possibility. I thought that writers were either men or rich, like, you know, gentry, kind yeah. of another world, or dead, you know? I didn't realise, like, it wasn't until I went to drama school, you know, found, like, the Bush Theatre and the Royal Court mm. and Soho and all of these amazing places that I would go then constantly to just drown in new writing i think that's the only time that i thought oh people, but even then it was like yeah but you know there's something else you know they've either been to university or yeah. they're english or they're you know something will make them a writer so there, there was a sense of imposter syndrome oh yeah. massively massive still dealing with that one kieran um but yeah absolutely definitely and what what was your time at Weber Douglas like? And how much did you learn from that period? Oh, gosh, loads. It was lovely. It was lovely. Yeah, I've just been talking to the whole group because we were like a an April group. So the intake is usually September. And then every April they would take, um, I think there were nine of us in this group, to a smaller group to also do a three-year that kind of happened in tandem or I don't I have no yeah. idea why we did it probably to get more money because then we you know it's an extra class that we pay um but it's been 20 this April it'll be 20 years and it was 
bloody lovely. It was brilliant. I mean, it's it's grueling and it's hard and it's, you know, 14-hour days plus then going home and having to learn lines or prepare yeah. for the next day and all this kind of stuff. But, oh, my God, you got to live and breathe it every day. And it was incredible. You know, we were really pushed and I liked Weber Douglas a lot. It wasn't known for... It had brilliant teachers. It had shit facilities, which is why it ended up um, uh, teaming up with Central in the end, I think, right. because they had the other way around, apparently. I'm not, I mean, I don't know Central, so I can't speak for it. But brilliant teachers. But it was just really kind of down to earth, kind of. And our group, especially, you know, all of us worked um, as well as going to drama school because, yeah. you know, none of us were coming there supported by. Um, you know, financially, um, you know, it was that everyone was just constantly, you know, so we were just, we were quite real in that sense and everyone really wanted it. We were all slightly older. So it was a real committed, um, down to earth group. Uh, yeah. So it was just brilliant. So I learned lots about life and I'm sure I learned lots about drama and theatre too. I'm sure I did, but it's just, it was just about growing up for me, you know? Growing up, coming out, like it was just a massive, yeah. important and beautiful time. Yeah, it was. Fantastic. Oh, it's just really lovely. Um, I, I had, it's good to hear kind of like a really kind of positive experience because sometimes you hear kind of negative experiences of drama school, yeah. but it's fun yeah. to hear that from you. And there were, yeah, and there were definitely classes there that, you know, if I was in those groups, I'm not sure I would, you know, there's quite a few mm. more like, I don't know, just, yeah, a bit more entitlement maybe, people going there straight after, mm. you know, got into drama school straight at 18, straight from school, <laughs> yeah. you know, so yeah. a completely different yeah. thing, you know, and it wasn't the kind of school that would kind of like, you know, make you go naked or do like, I don't know, um, what do they call it? Ex- like that kind of dancing where you just express yourself. Like if it, if there was any of that, <laughs> but yeah, it was just hard training. It was really yeah. hard training. But, but yeah, we had a laugh. I'm gonna move on slightly. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your writing process. Um, is it the same every time, or does it differ depending mm-hmm. on the piece that you're working on? Yeah, well, I'll talk about my process now because it's definitely changed, you know, along the years, uh, as I'm sure it has for everyone. Um, yeah, because I mean, at the beginning, I had to write on paper and I had in Welsh, for example, I couldn't do anything else. Um, now, um, I love writing in the morning. If I could, I would write from like 4 a.m. Uh, and finish then at 11. But since having kids, I've had to be, you know, I've had to change to a slightly more um, conservative uh, hours of working. So I'll start now about half seven. Right. Uh, when the kids go to school. Uh, and usually, usually be done half two with my writing at least. Um, I, I plan, I plan a lot, I structure a lot. I use lots of index cards. Um, yeah. I'll plan a lot before I actually start writing. Uh, I'm doing more and more of that as I go on, actually, um, especially at the moment because I'm really trying to 
write more for for screen and, and TV and just really loving the the rigorous and disciplined structure of all of that you know and just that kind of stopping yourself from writing until you absolutely know that this machine works before covering it up do you, do you like doing treatments and scene by scenes for tv or do you find that restrictive um, treatments are a pain in the ass um <laughs> and they're an absolute different ill and form of writing so no i don't like treatments at all i love writing pitches right. i do like writing pitches um you know you're kind of one pager kind of putting teasers and hooks where you don't actually have to answer or solve <laughs> anything you just have to kind of draw their attention i do like writing pitches um and i do yeah story beats like beat sheets definitely like a bullet point but I prefer to write ones for me as opposed to write right. ones that other people need to read and mm -hmm. understand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just I need can it to be clear in my head. So yeah, when it's all of a sudden, you know, people need to read it and stuff, that is a bit of a, a bit of a shag. But um, yes, and then I've got then my process, my whole other side of my world and life, uh, which is when I work with and within communities. Mm. A process there is all about just being on the street, in the room, drinking tea with people, uh, running workshops, and just immersing myself fully mm. into a community or a group, or sometimes it's just one person, and, you know, writing kind of... So that's slightly faster in terms of pace. It's more kind of like just reacting and responding to exactly what I've got and collecting of course yeah. uh, my verbatim work is the same in that sense of just collecting it until I then go to kind of structure and, and put it together that's really really interesting um I'd like to talk about your verbatim work next if uh, if we can so yeah. how, how did you discover this form so it was completely by accident and by invitation. So lots of thanks there is to Arwell Griffith and Sean Summers, who were both at the Sherman Theatre at the time. Right. Uh, and yes, I'd been, I mean, you know, they've both been mentors to me at different times in my life uh, as a writer and been extremely supportive um, mm. and just, uh, yeah, just, been, you know, all of us have champions in our corner been some of mine and um, so they me in and I think they'd seen an article in Gollog I think it was about money um, I can't even remember what the article said but it was about money our relationship to money um, and so they asked me if I'd be interested in writing a verbatim play and my first question had to be what is a verbatim play um, I'd never heard the word before right. like had no idea what it was um, and so they basically said you know you would find people to talk to uh, and yeah you would you know record it transcribe it see all the and try and see if there's a play in there so I went off for a period I can't remember of how long um, to interview some people I also bought the book Verbatim Verbatim, which I highly <laughs> recommend for anyone who's going to write a verbatim play, which is all just interviews with different mm. verbatim writers. Um, they also set up a meeting with me 
and Max Stafford Clark, slightly controversial by today, um, whilst he was at out of joint. Um, and I got to sit and ask him some questions about, you know, writing a play. So they really set me up in that sense. Um, and yeah, that was then, you know, a process of, gosh, was it three years? Five years? Wow. I can't even remember now. Of, let's say three, just to be optimistic and to wow. think of the people to work for Baton Place, because five sounds really long. Um, <laughs> And yeah, just um, just putting it together. So learning on the job, definitely mm. being very much supported to learn on the job, and that's how um, Skids was written. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with the form and can't let it go. Uh, so yeah, others have followed since. And uh, like when you write your interview questions. Mm. Are you trying to, are you going to use the word manipulate? Do you have an idea of what you want out of this person before you go in? Or are you going in completely open-mindedly? Uh, I would say I was more open-minded in the first time I wrote a verbatim play. Because, yeah, but, uh, but I would say too open-minded. So I was just, I was giving so much... Um, uh, power to the words that I actually was forgetting my own power as a playwright within putting the play together. So for example, I um, interviewed a Tory uh, MP for Skint, right? And absolutely just gave him the floor and asking questions, you know, and giving him space to kind of talk. Yeah. But my, one of my problems uh, or my personality traits is that I'm extremely empathetic. Um, but the problem with that when writing a verbatim play is that you just completely go on board, you know, you absolutely just understand, give the benefit of the doubt and, you know, want to believe the best in these people. So there was one draft I wrote of Skint after interviewing this Tory MP that was completely like pro-Tory and just kind of like, yeah, it was really like, just, you know, like the way I was then framing the single mother that is on benefits in the play or the way I was framing this couple that had lost their home because, you know, they'd not paid their mortgage. Like, it was all like, it was all kind of like pro-big society God. and kind of all this stuff. And I was like, remember I was looking at it going, right, okay, is this what you want to say? And I was like, oh God, no, but it's what he was saying. And it's just like, and so now, having a slightly better understanding of the form and you know having just quite used it's okay to understand and to accept that a the point of a verbatim play is using people's real words to write the play that you want to write yeah. and that's right. what it is you know so is is a play saying what i want to say to the world of as opposed to me just going, well, I'm just, you know, some kind of um, middleman or middle woman that is just putting some words that are real onto a stage. It's not like that. You craft your play to say what you want to say about the world, world. which is why then yeah. people have a problem with verbatim thinking, well, yeah, that is manipulation. Um, but I'm hoping that every time I do go and write a play, what I'm doing is also challenging what I want to say about the world and making sure that I interview people that do not think the same as me or have a different point of view or have a more authentic 
and real experience of what we're talking mm. about in order for it. So I, I learn along the way, you know. With sure. skins, the lesson. Sorry, with sure. skins, the lesson was, you know, I go out in going well. It's not all about money, yeah. and I left that process going. Actually, money does make you happy. You know, mm. it's a very privileged place for you to say. Oh, money doesn't make you happy. You've probably at that point got yeah. a certain amount of money where you're not drowning in debt. You know. Yeah. So there's a there's a process, a journey that you go on, definitely. So in their sense, because it was a bit of musical, did you firstly did you go in to the project with a structure that you knew you wanted the material to kind of fit to, or was it no. a process of gathering that and then creating the structure around what you have? So, Nurses was a four or five year process. Um, let me think, hold on. We started, me and Sarah Loy, the director, um, started the interviews in September of 2014. So, it's four years, four years until it then went up. Um, because I remember because I just had my first child, and so between each. Um, interview would be in the car and I'd be there expressing in the passenger seat while Sarah we later found out uh, was actually pregnant at the time so she was like her mind was everywhere so she'd always get lost on the map so we were always getting lost and be there like pumping in the passenger seat so it's quite a memorable uh, uh, thing so that started with just interviewing nurses just generally all nurses in Wales it was just to you know it was a celebration of working class women in Wales actually is how it started and focusing in then on nurses and then it was as that went on we were getting drawn more and more towards cancer nurses right. uh, sometimes on a personal level because you know of our relationship with cancer sometimes on a dramatic level of kind of thinking well this is where a lot of the drama happens you know it's tense and the stakes are high and just yeah just coming that had honed in and honed in and it still didn't have any songs or music in it. Uh, and then we were in the middle of, you know, interviewing, creating these drafts. When I was auditioning, uh, auditioning, rehearsing Kuskin Brasser mm. with Arad Goch, um, which was a, I guess it was the musical, wasn't it? I still feel weird calling any of my work musicals. but um, And I walked into the rehearsal room and everyone was just singing and dancing yeah. and not dancing you know it was any loud so it wasn't like oh, okay. you know, dancing. it was just cool kick-ass dancing and singing these awesome broma songs and it was just fun you know mm. and i was like oh my god this feels good and it probably reminded me a lot of my escoglanete days which is where i fell in love with theater in the first place and all coming full circle and i called sarah who didn't have much sleep at the time so she was in theater crew and i said this play needs songs <laughs> like sorry excuse me what what like, like we need songs we need songs this play is missing songs and so we just went from there really and uh it just made sense you know we just needed it it needed the play needed yeah it. What, what kind of reception did you get to it uh, to the idea that it needed song. Yeah, let's see it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, like going back to uh, someone I just spoke highly about, Arlo Griffin, his face was slightly kind of, <laughs> what? Uh, 
and we were like, we, it, it's going to work, it's going to work. And so it, it took time. It wasn't all of a sudden like, yeah, brilliant. It's just like, what are you talking about? So we had another R&D, with yeah. many of them, but we had one specifically to look at putting songs to the play using, you know, verbatim words. And I'd welcome him to see the sharing at the end, and he's like, oh, yeah. So, okay. absolutely. So, it was the song um, Switch Off that we've been working with, as well as others, but that was the one where you're like, oh, yeah, because not only does music, um, you know, give you some emotional protection from mm. a, a something, it actually, by being protected and by feeling safe, because, you know, there's songs, like, there's something about it that makes you feel safe, you can actually bring the audience closer to the emotion because then they're feeling safe. So actually, oh, we're yeah. able to, it's about the connection then, you know, and yeah. Yeah, I can see establishing that. That's really interesting, actually. Um, I am going to move on yeah, slowly. So a lot of your work has been kind of large scale sites site-specific theatre. Uh, how do you kind of start a project like this? And what's that like as a playwright, having to, to write something like that? Um, hmm. I guess... You've got to have quite a lot of um, ambition. And I think be a little bit cocky, I think is the only word, but just kind of like quite bullheaded about it. Right. Of just being convinced that you could do it, you know? And just thinking, yeah, I'm just going to put a play <laughs> up here on this council estate. Yeah. Because it's, um, yeah, because the, the, the reason that I love doing the large-scale site-specific stuff is because it's all about creating a theatrical experience in a space where we don't necessarily link it to theatre or that, you know, that the community or the group that we're working with don't necessarily have a relationship anymore to theatre. And absolutely in the past, they all will have had, especially in Wales, you know, when theatres happened in village halls and on the streets mm. and all that kind of stuff. So it's not to say that they, you know, don't have that culture or have never had it or have, you know, have them a cultural in very different ways. But it's about their relationship now to theatre and that feeling sometimes of not feeling that they belong there. Um, so that's where it starts. So it literally starts with me uh, knocking on doors with leaflets. Right. Just... Uh, landing there you know and with people obviously and as time's gone on that team has been able to go, get bigger but the first projects like Kalinta, A Queer Christmas, Blotin, all of those were just yeah me and a couple other people that were crazy enough to come on the journey just hanging out on the street chatting to people drinking copious amounts of tea and just trying to get people to to you know take a punt on us and have a go and join us and put a show on um mold riots was slightly different because obviously the company is much bigger mm. and um you know my geographical location is different and all that kind of stuff so you know they they created a team that actually were based in mold and based with yeah. you know linked to theater which of course made complete sense but that's exactly what they did too was just 
knocking on doors, meeting new people, and just creating an inviting space to bring everyone together to then. How do you do people. that? How do you make people feel comfortable? Oh. Um. God, good question. Uh, gosh, I think it's been different every time. I mean, yeah, I think it, more than anything, I think it's time. It's giving people time. It's meeting people in places where it is their space and they do belong, and us being visitors there. Um, it's um, I'm trying to think of Queer Christmas, how that happened. I think with Queer Christmas, it was about creating a space that was queer as opposed to queer friendly. Okay. That what well, you know that was queer and ally friendly. That was outside of a nightclub or a, or a gay bar, you know. Mm. I think that's what made us brought us together there, and it was intergenerational as well. So it's really creating a space where we all. It wasn't so much that we were welcomed, it was our space, you know, mm. it, was for, it was for us to claim, um, yeah, which was amazing. And we watched a bit of the documentary in preparation for this. It was really interesting to see people come together from different generations in those workshops that you had before the performance, and the effect that that had. How did that feel for you as the creator of that piece? Oh, you know, it was just, it was such a special project. I would say that all of the site-specific ones uh, have been really special just because I think it has so much heart and it has so much purpose, you know. You don't have to look for that because it's absolutely there because you're working within a community of people that really want to put a show up. Um, yeah, it was just huge. There was so much that happened in that in that whole process that... Um, yeah, that made you look and go, oh, wow. I mean, you know, because Carolina, my wife, was working on it too. She was the filmmaker on it. Um, I was in the first trimester of my first pregnancy. So, you, you know, all of those things and then looking around and there was, you know, there were young people coming out during mm. the process. There was, it was just such a massive moment of just the space where you're just like, wow, this... All of those things are really um, massive. You know, just going, just the acting workshops and being able to do improv and have, yeah. you know, gay relationships or just, you know, LGBTQ people in the improv being LGBTQ <laughs> as opposed to, do you know what I mean? And it sounds yeah. crazy, but we were able to set up like, okay, so the two of you boys are in the changing room at school getting ready for PE. Now that set up, that, whole experience is completely different you know um yeah depending on your sexuality or gender identity actually like it's so it's being able to have those conversations and as a normal thing as opposed to yeah like i remember working with the actors and you know we had a lesbian couple uh, well a bisexual and a lesbian in, as a couple yeah. and just trying to think, okay, well, how do they flirt, you know? That it's not the same as what you see in your movies of your man and woman flirting. No. Having to get, yeah, it was all just so special. And just, um, yeah, and people's parents coming to watch them mm. and that being a massive change for them. And so, yeah, things like pregnancies and marriages and relationships and coming out and all of that, it was so heightened about how 
house still very important and unique mm. and uh, still other and different that is usually, you know. I, I, so, know. I think, yeah, I don't think we've moved on that far since Christmas, so it's definitely yeah. an important piece of work, but there's still a lot more work that needs to be done on that front. I, do I agree. I agree. I think there's absolutely room for another queer Christmas to happen, definitely. Um, and I'm also now uh, setting up a collective of um, of young queer Welsh people that are right. interested in film um, to run along a feature film that I'm writing with Yeah Yeah Productions. And so we are partnering with Mess Up the Mess, People Speak Up internationally, and uh, Valley's Kids to create a new collective and, and yeah it's really interesting seeing from you know we've only had one workshop so far but just hearing the experiences i agree with you i don't think we've moved on much from that i'm gonna move on slightly um so during lockdown you've been working with spark valley's kids as part of their puddle jump project which i was sharing a few weeks ago and i really enjoyed um so this project was creating engaging bilingual stories for children and young people. So can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, of course. So my work with Spark uh, at Valley Kids is mostly to do with the project called Powerful Interventions, uh, which is a commission that we're doing with the, the WMC. And as part of that, or as part of because I'm working with them, then. Uh, I was invited to take part in Puddle Jump, um, which is all about therapeutic storytelling uh, for families um, and kids of all ages. Uh, yeah, so I was there to look at the bilingual aspect of that and making sure that there was an in to... Well, I, I was using Welsh and English because they're two languages that I speak, but it was looking into making sure that therapeutic storytelling can be available uh, in your mother tongue, the importance of that, and also looking at how bilingualism, uh, that we can use it in a way that then feels accessible and open yeah. and inclusive, as opposed to this is in English, this is in Welsh, or whatever the other language would be. I, I think it's really interesting the way that you did it. Do you think there needs to be a conversation about changing that mindset about bilingualism? Because it still feels to me, especially within some circles, that in, within Welsh, um, there's a push on kind of correctness and like being correct, which kind of discourages people from engaging yeah. with the Welsh language. It's yeah, I don't actually know how Welsh-speaking Welsh folk feel about my bilingual work, to be honest with you. I'm not actually sure. I know there's some people that have been a part, you know, um, there were some actually in Puddle Jump that were enjoying it, but I'm not sure in the general population how they feel about the fact that I mix Welsh and English so much within that, in that kind of way. Um, but... I would say that I have heard and listened to too many people who can speak Welsh, who believe that they can't speak Welsh well enough um, because mm. 
they don't think their Welsh is correct enough or good enough or um, uh, not or too different to what they hear on telly um, or in books. And so that's the reason that I am so, that I really passionately believe that working bilingually like this can really work and help in that sense of making it um, attractive, making it fun, mm -hmm. uh, reminding people that they actually know way more Welsh than they do. Um, because, you know, I'm sure there are people who say they don't speak Welsh and actually if you'd sit down and, and you know, I honestly believe that everyone who lives in Wales has some understanding of Welsh because we hear it, you know? It's the same way as how babies pick up languages. Like we. We surround ourselves with this. And if you're not thinking about it, there's so much about it that you already know. There's so yeah. many, there's the sounds that you know, there's a, a lilt that you know, like you, they, you know, you've heard these for many, many years now. And so it's there, you know, it is yeah. there. So I think it's tapping on that. And it's also, I mean, the biggest thing about of working bilingually without literally constantly translating is it so bloody boring for the people who know both languages? Yeah. Like, it's so, it's, oh, God, it's boring. It's I've just, been there, yeah. I mean, exactly, yeah, yeah. You're, there and you're just like, I have to listen to this again. Twice. And of course, you don't want that to sound like the attitude of like, oh, God, why do we have to do it in English? That's not what I'm saying. It's just the thing of like, okay, well, let's just, let's... Is there know? a more creative way of doing it? There has <laughs> to be, you know, there has to be. So, yeah, so it's just a, a mixture of all of that, really. Um, yeah. And, and how did the families that you worked with respond to the Puddle Jump project? Um, so I think quite well. I, was, I, I know they managed to do one live kind of event at a distance where they had families there. Uh, and I think they, they shared that video. Um, and then within the conference I'm trying to think if there was any families that fed back there but I'm not sure I'm not right. sure is the answer but um, like I couldn't tell you for certain but uh, it seemed it seems to be having a um, yeah the people that are going to be sharing the story seem to have a really positive and we're quite positive about it being a um, yeah being successful so that's really good to know so um I wanted to touch briefly, it kind of came up in what we were just talking about, but do you feel like Welsh language theatre is still quite a socially conservative thing? And is there something that we can do as bilingual artists to like increase representation or like I don't know really how to word this this is my problem um, yeah but like do you kind of know what I mean I think I do yeah um I don't think it is conservative to be honest I really don't think so I think right. um yeah I think it's uh you know I think Welsh language theatre is playing with stuff and you know forms and um and yeah the work that's being done i don't think in any way feels you know conservative or old-fashioned like at all i really don't i think the people that are working in the industry are really working harder 
just expressing themselves in different ways and pushing boundaries and mm. yeah and really kind of really going for it I think in in a great way the problem of course is then thinking about all the people that are not mm. currently part of that group yeah. or industry and that's where there's a problem I think it's about you know how do we how do we create a diverse and inclusive space that is in the Welsh language and in theatre yeah. that celebrates all of that and gives space to, um, yeah. And, you know, I think, right, I hope I won't get too much on my high horse here, but there's always a danger. Um, Go on. But basically, <clears throat> right, you've got all these companies in Wales and beyond, Welsh language and beyond, that are all saying we are so, uh, our doors are open. Right. Of course, we celebrate diversity. We absolutely want to, you know, include people of all backgrounds, um, ethnicities, languages, all this kind of stuff, right? Everyone is absolutely up for it and, in ch you know, celebrating it and supporting it. The problem I have, or the question I have, is, okay, this is great, the door is open. Who is reaching out to make sure that these people that we yeah. want to be involved, that these groups, that these communities, are in any way uh, knowing that that door is open, prepared to get to that door, exactly. or already have to have been down a certain path to get to that door, to be ready to take it on. This is like yeah. great. Whose responsibility is that? Because no one is taking responsibility for that. Or no one's taking that on board going, okay. Because, you know, you could meet the best, um, I don't know, actor, raw talent actor that you can find, right? Yes. And let's say that they're, they're incredible, they're amazing, right? But unless they... They have that, I mean, there's just so much more than it to that, you know, to do with being ready for, for the job, for the, the discipline, for yeah. the understanding of how the world, the, how the, that world works. Access and, to training, you know. Absolutely. And just having, you know, like, yeah, we can all say, cool, yeah, we want more working class people working for us. Brilliant. But unless you're actually understanding what it means to be, you know, to be working class and to have everything mm. that comes within that in terms of responsibility, in terms of financial stability or instability, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, just coming from a close community and having a certain pattern or, you know, a certain priorities in your life that have always been important, that all of a sudden, all of that gets challenged because you're going to go on tour onto some play that, do you know what I mean? Like all exactly. of that we need an understanding of all of this. They're not just going to rock up at the door uh, ready uh, and figured all that out. I know? mean, you're speaking my language entirely because I've, you know, I've spoken about it before on the podcast, but I've had conversations with producers from uh, national Welsh language theatre companies who have said that there aren't any disabled actors who speak Welsh. And I challenged that, you know, why is that the case? What do you need to put in place as a company to ensure that you are casting disabled actors? And exactly. why 
But but it goes deeper in terms of disability. It's like access to Welsh media education, and then it's access to normal school, and then yeah, it's not. It shouldn't be an excuse, is what I think. And yeah, I think that absolutely. some people are using it as an excuse. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Like, it's all about us all taking responsibility. And, you know, for me, this is about life in general, not just about our industry, but everyone needs to do their bit on their doorstep. Yeah. If we do that, then... Like a thing of exposing yourself through your character. 
like this, do you know what I mean? Even yeah. I found this, it's difficult to work from exactly your own perspective. If you can find a, a way, a way into doing that, it can be really powerful. I mean, you know this, yeah. obviously. But well, like, I'm slowly trying <laughs> at 39, so uh, I might, might have nailed it by, you know, by the time I peg it, who knows? But it's just... Um, yeah, so it's interesting, but I think it's all tied in. It's all political in that sense, yeah. you know, just how you feel you fit into the world, how you feel you belong in the world as well, I guess. And just all of that, of just how much of a right you think you have to your voice. It's probably the imposter syndrome again, isn't it? It's yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I think it's something that we're going to continue to battle with. Yeah. Internally. And uh, sorry, I don't think I've answered your question at all then about, you know, whether they say, oh, we've done Marlowe, so you, that's the lesbian's take. Because um, I'm not sure I've written that play yet. Right. To be honest. Yeah. Perhaps in a, in a different way to, to if they went, oh, we've done a Dav James play, so we don't need. Yeah. yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Mm. we're not going to fix this today (laughs) so the last thing I'm going to ask you is what advice would you give to someone like me who's just starting out as a writer in the industry Um, gosh to not lose heart I guess at the depressing state that everything is in right now um that's probably the first thing. I'm I, I'm quite, I'm highly aware of how how different it must feel as a, an industry to look at and to think of how um, how you get in and how you start off. Um, the only thing I guess is that as a writer, you need to write, and I don't mean that in a in a funny way what I mean is if you are a writer then you need to write you have an impulse and a need within you to write so that shouldn't that should so regardless of what I mean I was going to say that shouldn't stop you of course it will stop you because there's also the fact that we're human and we have emotions and we have bills to pay and all that kind of stuff but that Yes, so I guess my advice would be to never, to always give time to that impulse, uh, to always let it cut into your social time. So we've all we've all done it. However, you know, slightly more promising the industry looked like. Pick a time that you're brilliant at writing, whether that's early hours, middle of the night, middle of the afternoon, whatever it is, and protect that time to write and then you do everything else you need to do around it so mine was always the morning right so I would go from like 4am to 11 which meant that I could work in a call centre in the afternoon um, and then in the evenings I could work in a bar or Mm. stewarding or whatever Um, and then yeah or delivering sandwiches as I did on my bike but that that could come later you split your days but you protect that time to write because it doesn't matter how good the industry how promising or 
brilliant or or shit it is unless you've been working on your writing and unless you've been figuring out what to do and what you want to say and how you want to say it then it doesn't matter does it do you know what i mean and so once and once you do start protecting that time and writing and keep writing then you'll start creating stuff that you are so proud of that you need to get it out there so i think that's where the fire comes from then um and yeah keep in touch with people Mm. uh i had well i still have um this ritual of keeping in touch with people twice a year so christmas is easy because you can do the whole hey i'm just saying merry christmas but then at the same time you just give them uh, a paragraph of what you've been up to yeah. you know uh just to keep in touch because people do forget you because there's a whole load of people like us that are trying to get in touch with people plus they've got the stuff that they're working on right now so they will yeah. forget about you and that's okay just keep reminding them that you're here i mean and then in the summer i before i kind of take a bit of time off in the summer i like to kind of just get in touch just say a quick hi and say what i'm up to and that that has gotten me so much work oh wow so much work because it just happens to be that of the 50 emails that i've sent two of them might have been like oh actually i'm doing this oh actually you'd be quite a good fit for this or oh can we keep talking about this because oh something will come up but yeah you've got to you know that part of the job Mm. um very little patience for people like oh i don't like networking i'm not very good at it it's like find your way of networking i don't go to those swansies you know fancy things and soirees and eat canapes so I can meet people. That's not my way of networking. I don't also go out late at night and then keep going and, I don't know, go to a club or take drugs with them because then I can be best mates with them. That's not my way of no. networking either. But emailing and saying hi, going for cups of tea and, you know, creating real strong relationships with people, that is my way. And so it's just about finding your way of networking. And, of course, doing it. I mean, you've got to hustle. You have to yeah. hustle. Um, <laughs> But you've got to carve out time to write. You must, you know, you must. Deals and Rose, that has been fab, fab talking to you. Um, but that's it for this episode of In Lockdown Woods. Uh, I will see you on the next episode. So for now, it's bye from me and bye from Beth. Bye. Hello. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.